Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Welcome to Deconstructed. I'm Natasha Leonard, a columnist for The Intercept, sitting in for Ryan Grimm this week. It is day 126 of Israel's war on Gaza. Not a single university on the besieged strip has survived the military onslaught. Israeli forces have bombed hundreds of schools and educational institutions, including libraries, heritage sites, and museums. All schools are closed. Human rights monitor Euromed, a Geneva-based independent nonprofit, reports that the Israeli army has targeted academic, scientific, and intellectual figures, bombing their homes without prior notice. Over 94 academics have been killed, alongside hundreds of teachers and thousands of students. Every university has been systematically destroyed. In a video shared by Israeli soldiers on social media, a soldier walks through the rubble of Al-Atsar University. He says, To those who say why there is no education in Gaza, we bombed them. Oh, too bad you'll not be engineers anymore. Today I speak to Dr. Ahmed Al-Husseina, the vice president of another destroyed university, Al-Izra. Israeli forces seized his university soon after they invaded Gaza, using the buildings as a barracks and a detention center to interrogate Palestinians. In mid-November, the Israeli military released a video showing a massive explosion. The IDF had flattened Al-Izra in a controlled detonation. Dr. Al-Husseina speaks to us from Egypt, where he and his family have fled. Dr. Al-Husseina, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. You are joining us from Egypt, but you were previously in Gaza and working at Isra University. Tell us a little bit about the university before it was destroyed. The uh, Isra University was established in 2014. We started teaching in the fall of 2015, September 2015. When this uh, university was established by pioneers and academics, and our vision was poverty would not stand an obstacle in front of any Palestinian that wants to pursue a college degree. And we followed that, this with action. Uh, we had so many scholarships, like for minorities, for females, for divorced women, we had, at that time, right before the war, we had 4,300 students, which mostly 65% were females. We were about to initiate or to, uh, open the building of the, the first university hospital in Gaza. We built it. We had accredited for the Bachelor of Medicine, which we just started teaching a couple of weeks before the war started. That was our first semester for that. Uh, we had a museum that we collected from a lot of collectors and regular people 
around Gaza, we had 3,000 artifacts in, in it, and we were going to open it to the public. We were just about to finish the building, just a small building next to the main campus building, which also was destroyed and looted. All that was gone. It was over 3,000 artifacts from the pre-Islamic, from Roman Empire, from all the history of Palestine. There was, we had all the currencies from the state of Palestine, 1905, 1920s, all these times. Like I said, we have ancient, we have recent modern history, and that's all gone. Nothing is there. They looted it before they destroyed it, and then they just booby-trapped the building. Like I said, we st we had a lot of hopes for the for the university. We were moving up the scale. We became number three in Gaza as a largest university in you know number three on as a record in Gaza. Uh, we were moving up. We had we had, had last year we joined the Scopus, you know, uh, the credential, which you know what Scopus is, right? We were the first university for our Journal of Applied Science to to join Scopus uh, Research Database. So yes, there was in the midst of, of crucial work and building work. I want to talk a little bit about daily life before the Israeli bombardments began, but also just because you mentioned it, the, the looting and sacking of artifacts and the eradication of histories and culture and ways in which Palestinians could speak of their own history and their own sources of memory. Of course, numerous museums and heritage sites have been desecrated and decimated. Can you talk a little bit more about what that means going forward for being able to speak of Palestinian history and culture and preserve that kind of knowledge production? Like I said, um, I mean, that's all gone and, and all the news knows that, like you just mentioned, most of the places that has cultural value or archaeological value to the Palestinian is gone. I think it's a deliberate act of, like, deleting or just getting rid of everything that me that point or shows an a state or a people actually, and they destroyed everything. I don't know how we're gonna give all the stuff back. This replaceable things like that. I don't know where to find it. God knows where they're going to get it. How are you going to get it? I mean, this, these are limited things that they cannot be replaced. It's not something that we can just build something. And we can build, build new buildings, but I don't know how we're going to you know, preserve this you know, sentimental and archaeological value of our culture and heritage and everything that pointed out to that, that proves that there was people living there. That will defy the occupation Propaganda says people with no land came to a land with no people. I mean, they saying the Palestinians had no, no people. There was no such thing as Palestine, and this thing defies it. And I think that's one of the main reasons they attack these kind of things. They approach trees, they approach even cemeteries. Then how they taken them out? They approach churches. The one of the you know the third oldest church in Palestine also was was bombed. So many mosques, hundreds of mosques, hundreds of schools. Every single university was hit somehow, some of them partially damaged, some of them totally destroyed. Schools are all mostly gone. Mosques, hospitals, medical centers, even, like I said, libraries, the oldest library, Gaza City Library also was destroyed. I don't know what, what else can you explain this. It, it is what it is, you know, it is a destruction of everything Palestinian. They want to make Gaza unlivable. And they wanted to show its history. They, you're not even if you go there now, you're not going to see anything but rubble and destruction. 
over 70,000 of the buildings were destroyed. I don't know where people are going to even have a life. No, uh, absolutely. So, yes, speaking of that, of, of life, tell us a little bit about daily life before this particular war. You told us a little bit about what the university was building. Um, your life and the life of your colleagues and students. Can you give us a sense of what that looked like? Especially because, obviously, it's not like history began on October 7th. I am curious about some of the existing challenges for academics, university life in Gaza and uh, Palestine more generally under Israel's blockade and uh, occupation. Yes, it's... uh... Like I said, we were teaching. Life was going fine. We were uh, had, we had actually graduated our fourth class of in last year, two thousand twenty-three in August. We had the, the last graduation ceremony for our fourth class of this of the university. Life was going on. Like I said, we just got, I got credited for the Bachelor of Medicine. We had uh, so many new programs. We just started. We started the Center for Statistics and Surveys to do polls and surveys in Gaza. We just were, we had the building ready also inside the main campus and that was also gone. We had so many hopes for the future. Like I uh, said, uh, the obstacles, uh, we have so many hindrances. Even when we build in the building, you have to get approved for every single piece of, you know, cement. They have to get, like they say, you get two tons of cement. You have to get approved by the Israeli side. They have to know where it's going and they have to be supervised by the UNDP on the staff of UNRWA. They have to see it. They had a storage house with cameras that you have to pick up exactly the amount that you need for this particular area. Let's say you're going to build 100 meters, square meters. That's what you're going to need, cement for this much and you know stones for this much. They calculate everything. So you have to wait in lines and, and you know delays and all that. Other than that, everything that you need to buy for laboratories, you know, equipment for laboratories, also was delayed for years, you know. So we order, uh, for example, uh, when COVID-19 happened, we had purchased uh, a real-time PCR. You know, that's the instrument that you use to test for corona. We ordered that time, we still haven't got it till now. They said that it's not allowed, it's not permittable. We had to get involved with the Red Crescent, the ICRC. Also couldn't help, they helped us before uh, last year. We got one of the instruments they built um, up themselves. After, you know, so many negotiations, it took us years to get it in. We got it, but the PCR never got there. They say this is forbidden and it's not permittable. I don't know, it says dual use. What are you going to use it for? I have no idea. Uh, there's so many things that you're not allowed to bring in, even pipes. That's, oh, they say it's for dual use. Anything they want to deny entry to Gaza, they have the excuse of saying it's dual use. They can use it for something else. And so many things goes under that category. It's, it's delayed. So also... When our, you know, academics and intellectuals try to travel, there's always restrictions on who, who can travel. You need a permit from the Israeli side to go to the West Bank. Even you want to go to, to attend the scientific conference or you go to visit a university or even go to the Ministry of Higher Education and Scientific Research. You need to apply for a permit months ahead, and most of the time it's rejected for no reason. It's a security reason. Sometimes it's, they don't even tell you a reason. Sometimes they just keep you, tell you it's still pending and it takes six months or seven months. When the occasion is gone, the conference's date is expired and it's gone. So you don't even need to travel after that if you get approved. Same thing for traveling overseas. If you want to go through that, you have to go through the same thing. If you've got to go through the border crossing, it's also hell because it's not open all the time and there's so many restrictions. So we had missed a lot of 
conferences and, and even, you know, uh, our academics to go to another university, to go overseas. We had so many invitations. A lot of people could had to cancel. Yes. So uh, even before this war, academic life was under a lot of control and faced many obstacles. Now it has been decimated or put into exile. As mentioned, I'm speaking to you while you're in Egypt. And if you're able to, would love to hear more about your life after October 7th, what you've been through and your journey to Egypt and, and what your life is, is looking like now. Um, before you know, the war, I was the vice president for financial and administrative affairs at the university. And I also was teaching in the business department. And we had, you know, my house, I had a nice house. I had a vehicle I just purchased, which is also worth burning out trouble, which is cost about $45,000. And we had, the house was almost totally destroyed, not totally, but mostly, it's unlivable right now. Uh, of course, the university is gone. You don't know what to go back for. We left the house uh, after it was, you know, unlivable. We left the house in November 14th trying to go to the south. We were living in the city of Gaza, like in the north side. So we tried to leave. It's always We've been trying to leave since the beginning of the war, my family and I. We had so many obstacles. We so many. It was so dangerous. You, you know, you, you get in a car, they, sh- they bomb cars, they shoot at cars, they sh- you walk, they shoot at people. There's so many snipers after they already started their, you know, ground operation. And uh, November 14th, I decided to leave with the family. So we, had, we took... A, a small car, which it dropped us far away from. You cannot get close to where they are because they shoot any, anything that moves. Then you have to walk, pull your bag on sand, of course, because all the roads were uprooted, uprooted by the you know the bulldozers and the tanks. So you have to walk in the, in the sand, pulling those bags. And once you get there, there's uh, some cameras, and you have to go through like a, a hole, a container or something that you walk through a little room. And then there's cameras and all kind of stuff. And then you walk and then once you cross the room, they gather you on you know, patches of 200 people or 150, 150 people. You stand in front of the Israeli army, which is like about 100 yards away. And they're looking at you with binoculars and cameras and all that. And then you have to stand up and hold your ID in your hand like that. And you, have, you stood, you stood like in this position for two and a half hours. And it was like sunny. It's kind of, you know, it was 12 o'clock and it was kind of hot. You're feeling dizzy and you can't even sit down because if you move, you might get shot. And if you drop something, you cannot bend down to pick it up. You're not allowed to move. So if you drop something, you lose it. So that's how bad it was. And then while, while you're standing there, uh, you know, they're making fun of you. They're calling people donkeys and stuff. You red donkey with the red shirt, come on out. You come out. They call you. You come out. You get close to them about, I guess, I guess say 30 yards, there's a big ditch. In the sand, they make you go in there and take your whole clothes off, everything, totally butt naked. I'm sorry to say that, naked. And a lot of people got through that. Even 65 years old men was there. They have them totally naked. And then you to make a turn around. I don't know why they scare off. Then they come out, handcuff you, blindfold you, and take you inside. Like they arrest people. Some people they make them just sit on the side. They use them as a human shield overnight and let them go in the morning. Some people got arrested and went away, unknown places. Then after, like I said, the two and a half hours ordeal, they told us you can walk, just start walking that way. So we start walking. We pulled our bags, our luggage, and what was left of our dignity. 
we walked about an about another mile, and then we got to a place where the, there's a cart pulled by donkeys that we rode on for another mile and a half that we have to pay for. And then a mile and a half later, you find, you get where some people are. You find a taxi we, we, which we took, rented to the border to Rafah crossing where the Egyptian side is. While we going, you know, walking through, there was bodies on both sides of the road. You know, once you start working from the Israeli side where the Israeli army is, there's bodies on both sides of the road. There's nobody to pick them up. They they started to decompose. You know, there's a lot of them decomposing already. And we look at, you know, you cannot see this kind of stuff. I had my grand, my granddaughter, she's three years old. I had to cover her eyes just to, not to see this kind of stuff. And once we got there, you know, we to the border and we crossed to Egypt. And which is actually, of course, something that many people are also not even able to do. Even this ordeal, um, many people are hoping to do. It's expensive, it's difficult and not possible. So this ordeal that you went through is also something that many, many Gazans wish they could. Yes, like I said, we actually we were lucky ones that day. Uh, two days later, people not, were not allowed even to carry luggage back. You have to walk with, you know, barefoot, bare hand, nothing with your hands. I mean, we were lucky enough to get a couple of, you know, one bag of one luggage of our clothes. We had some clothes. On. But other people, when they crossed after, like I heard stories from my cousin, two days later, he left after me. And he went to the south side. He just went to Rafah to stay there. He said it's safe, it's safe to stay there. They had to go in there with no nothing, with no luggage or anything. And they had no clothes, no, I mean, just whatever they were in, no food, no money. And they had to go stay in another city where they, where they didn't know anybody. I don't know how are they making it right now. People living in tents in this cold weather and it's been raining for so many days. There's no food. People are very hungry. And if you find food that is very, very expensive that you can't afford, it. whatever it was for $5 right now, it's like 10 to 10 fold over, 10 times. If they can't afford it. Nobody has any money right now. Where are they going to get money from? Just those who are not able to get to Egypt, but also relatedly, are you in contact with your colleagues from the university, family members who uh, have not been able to cross with you, other people you may have worked within? Palestinian academia or students, how have you or have you been able to maintain contact and know how the people you worked with every day are doing? Uh, I have still have family there. I still have brothers and sisters back in Gaza. I have a brother and sisters in northern and in, still in the Gaza city where I used to live close by. And they can find food and they keep moving from one place to another because the bombing is close by. And then they move, then they come back to the house. And you just go back and forth. My other brother moved moved with his family to the south side of Gaza. They went to Khan Yunus, was where the bombing is. He's been living there for a month and a half with his family, his kids and my wife and kids and grandchildren. And uh, that's how they're doing. I mean, uh, you, you keep worrying, you try to get in touch. You have to call like 10 times to get sometimes. And sometimes you will never get it. Sometimes you just send messages by using social media, WhatsApp or or any means of contact to get an answer back in a couple of days. They're saying, we are okay, how are you doing? Every time we, all day we're watching the news, that's what we're doing. We're seeing Al Jazeera, we're seeing all other kind, you know, news channels. And we listen to it, we're watching it. Every time we hear a bombing close to, to where they live, we have to call up and send because you don't know. You don't know who's, who's next and who's not. Last night, it just happened. They bombed the house where my cousin lived in Ra, like border of Rafa. 
they bombed the top apartment above their head. And when we see the building and they said it was long to these people, we thought they were gone and they were the rest of the family, you know. We had to keep calling, calling until they got somebody. They left. The bombing didn't come to there. So once they bombed the top, they just ran out. They walked out. I mean, they made it alive. But it's something I wanted to mention. Like one week later, on the 23rd, I think, after I left, seven or eight days later, they bombed the, the block where I live. And 102 of my my family and relatives have been killed there. A few of my nephews, my nephews, my nieces, a couple of my cousins, my uncles, their grandchildren, their wives, their kids, a lot of their families were wiped off the world, wiped off this, the register, you know. Um, and the problem is they're still under the rubble till now. I mean, over, you know, it's been two months almost, or 50 days now, and they still, most of them are still under rubble because you can't get anybody. The, um, there's no equipment whatsoever. They bombed everything that you can use, and you can't even drive in the street with that. If you call somebody to help, they bomb those kind of things. You have to use hands, and now you cannot pull all this concrete, this heavy concrete, and you can't take it out. You can't pull it up. So they still under there. They probably decomposed already now with bones or whatever. You know, I don't know how you can recognize them, and then God knows when is this going to end. And I, I feel sorry for the for the parents who cannot even, you know, bury their own children still. My sister goes there. She, she lost her two two only boys. They're still under rubble. I mean, they they're old enough. They're 25 and 24. But she goes there in front of the building with all the rubble, and she, I, I hear them. My other sister, but she goes there every day in the morning. She's like, I smell my kids, and just every single day. I'm so sorry for your loss. It is intolerable. Tell me about your life in Egypt now. You mentioned that, you know, glued to the news, of course, trying to keep in contact when possible. What What is day-to-day -day life aside from that? Your place of work destroyed, partially destroyed. There's nothing to do in here. Like I said, we are just uh, refugees right now. I mean, uh, we just, like I said, closed, you know, watching the news all day. We just, uh, sometimes I try to walk around just to walk my you know, to feel that they're doing something. We walk around to the market and come back. That's all we're doing. And there's no, we're not working and uh, there's nothing to do. I mean, you know, there's no work in, in Egypt anyway. Even if you try to, it's just so many people are out of work here. So all you do is just sit down in the house or just walk around and watch things and just, you know, just to move your bones or whatever. Just, you don't have to sit in the house all day. And like I said, my kids also, my two sons here, and they lost their uncles and cousins and you know so many things it's, it's uh, my brother lost his son and his with his kids his grandchildren all together he's also my brother's an american citizen i don't know how hard it is but there's nothing to do it's just um like i said news and I'm, i try to get in touch with people back home all day i I, got, I get in touch with people sometimes with my colleagues like you said some of them not all of them there's some of them already got killed one of them, Dr. Fadal Abrin, he's the most prominent psychologist. He, he was the, he's the head of the Department of Clinical Psychology at our university. He, he got killed with his family also, bombed his house, everything was gone. Uh, so many people that I know had passed away there like that, he just got killed. 
Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. And indeed, uh, a number of human rights monitors have noted that there seems to be incontrovertible evidence that academic intellectual figures were not just killed in the bombardments, but also targeted. Yes, uh, that is a proven, you know, fact. They, they target so many intellectuals and professors and in, in, in most of the university. Like you said, uh, the president of university, university has been found with his family, his wife and kids. So many doctors that personally know, professors, intellectuals, uh, they were killed like journalists where they were threatened. Actually, some of them were threatened. Rafat, Dr. Rafat al he was, he was teaching, you know, English literature. He, has a, he was a poet also. He was raising awareness. He was conveying our message to the world. And he was threatened and he was killed. Also. He was bombed with his house. And I think they, they're targeting intellectuals because they are role models for people. They teach nationalism and they shape opinions. We teach our students self-confidence we are so resistant in people and we organize opposition and as intellectual academics we can expose the barbaric nature of this regime of this occupation and that's probably why mostly they try to target these section of people it is it is deliberate you see the big question they aim to obscure the truth like i said they don't want these intellectual are the best people to convey or to make our tragedy reach, you know, the outer world, the Western world, and especially if they, you know, most of them, we went to schools or colleges in other countries, Western countries, most of them went to Europe or United States. So we are the best people to represent our case on a struggle to the outer world, to America and the Western world. And that's probably why the main reason they want to conceal the truth and they want to oppress the people, not to show, like I said, the true nature of barbaric nature of this regime. Yes, indeed. And in the words of Rifat uh, Alaria have indeed echoed through the poem he left, if I must die, you must live to tell my story. And that is these stories that so much death make impossible to share. So let's um, talk a little bit about international reception, international support, lack thereof, or where it has been present for you and your family. Can you talk a little bit about feelings around international support that you have been able to receive or not and what you would hope to see shifting? I was lucky enough with my family and I had the State Department help us to get out of there. I mean, you know, I can thank them for that. 
they're the one who are, you know posted our names too to the Israeli side and Egyptian side so we can cross the border. So there was, as you know, as you know there's nobody allowed to cross the border except for these, you know, people who do a citizenship and all their own countries get them out. Or other people like, you know, injured people, which is not much numbers coming out of there. They, they helped us out through that and they drove us to a hotel for a couple of days and then they told us, hey, you're on your own. That's, I guess that's the only help that we got so far from, from anybody. Back home, I mean, in Gaza, they did not get any help. I mean, I've been talking to my sisters and brothers. They had to, every day the, the kids go around and they try to find food to even to buy. You don't find it, especially in the north. You can't find anything to buy. Even if you had the money, money can't help you much because there's no much things to buy. Everything is gone. Everything is ran out. You know, it's been four months and there's nothing going in North Gaza. There's nothing in except a couple of, you know, bags of flour. That's what they need every day to make bread. And um, not much. And it's, like I said, the prices went out like 10 times up. Uh, they don't find food. They don't find, you know, much stuff in there. Uh, even chips and, uh, you know, potato chips used to be there. They, whatever they find, they buy. I mean, there's nothing left on the stores. Most of the supermarkets are shut down, closed, either bombed or there's nothing in there to sell. And you, you just buy from the black market. People walk in the street and try, you know, I don't know, they find something they try to sell. That's their daily life. And my other brother in the South, they sleep in the tent. And they sleep in a tent with their kids and the grandchildren in one tent. And, and it's, you know, it's, it doesn't even stop the cold or the air coming in, you know, the wind is moving in the, you know, the tent and the, even the water from the rain, it goes, rainwater goes underneath them. You know, that's how they live, you know, day-to-day day day life. And the same thing, they don't find, it's very hard to find food in it. Yeah, old shelter, whatever you had on you, you know, that's what you got. They say there's some, the United Nations is helping out, they give out food sometimes, you know, the flour that comes as, International aid from other countries, you know, the, from Kuwait and uh, Algeria and Turkey and, and other European countries in Spain and France. They send the food also and, you know, supplies, medical supplies. But like everybody knows, it doesn't go much. Like before the occupation, Gaza used to have 500 to 600 trucks going in to Gaza from the borders. That's how much they used every single day. 500 to 600 trucks, you know, these trailer trucks. And right now... What goes in is like um, 20, uh, now they're saying it was going up to 80, so I don't know uh, what the numbers are, but that's not never enough for, you know, one day, let alone if having, if nothing got in for four months. If they get a thousand a day, they're not, they're not that's not even going to be enough. And you have to keep bringing stuff in, you know. And in the South, because of the displacement and exodus of people, there's so many people on Arab across to the Egyptian border, there's over, you know, as you say, one point, Five million. It's like more than half of the population that are already living there in tents and in, in, the, in one town, because that's what the Israeli army told them. That's a safe place to go there. They told them to go to Egypt e, to Canyonus. Canyonus got bombed. You know, and they're bombing it right now. They went to the hospital and they bombed the hospital yesterday in Canyonus, which is the main hospital, Nasser Hospital. You know, there's no safe place to get there. Like when we used to live in during the war before I, we left. There was no safe place. We were thinking that we might like just get killed every single minute, any minute now, you know. We sit there at night, we we just said our prayers and goodbyes to each other with the family. We gather in one room 
So if, let's say if we die, we die together. And we say, we don't even know who's going to make it to the next morning. We just, that was the feeling every single night until we left. And I know that's even worse for them now. God knows, you know, what, what's on their mind. Especially when you move from one place from one house to another, to one tent to another. I know you keep running around and you don't know when is the next hit is going to be. It's, it's really hard. It's really and in terms of not just since this particular onslaught, but the treatment of Palestinian scholarship and scholars internationally, you mentioned before the, the sheer difficulty of leaving the Strip for scholars based in Gaza to attend international conferences and be part of international communities. Those of us based in the U.S., are certainly aware of, of some of the, the difficulties Palestinian voices have had in holding standing in U.S. universities. And that's true of non-Palestinian academics who support Palestinian liberation. How do you feel about the international support and lack thereof of Palestinian scholarship in your experience prior to this war and now and thoughts going forward? There was some, you know, international, at least, let's say, sympathy with the Palestinian. But if you have a Palestinian passport, it doesn't get you anywhere. That's one of the main, you know, obstacles also for Palestinians, intellectuals or academics or scholars. If you try to travel anywhere in the world, you always need a visa. It's not like, you know, it's not a strong nationality or a passport that you can go so many countries without a visa, like the American passport or the other countries. Even in the Arab world, the, the Palestinian passport is not considered a passport. It's, they treat you like a, one of those third-class citizens or whatever. You're always subject to a stop, your interrogation. You have to sit aside for a couple of hours waiting before they stamp your passport. They have to find out who you are. Uh, even you go in any, any Arab countries, your passport is it's a flag. It's, you're always a suspect if you're a Palestinian, especially coming off Gaza. No matter how how prominent or known scholar you are, you you have to go through this horrendous I don't know how you call it a treatment every single time. If you're lucky enough to have an, a different passport, a dual citizenship, that might help you a lot. If you're going into Arab countries or even other European countries, it's easier for you to get a visa. You know, you can do it online with a lot of countries if if they require a visa to start with, but if you have a Palestinian passport, you have to wait probably a couple of months before you can get a visa. Once you go in there, you always, you know, they don't cover exactly even your expenses most of the time because uh, I guess Palestine is not a recognized state according to their standard in some countries, not all. Some other places you go there, they respect you and they treat you right as one of the, you know, like your other colleagues of other countries, but that's in rare conditions. Uh, that's before the war. After the war, I haven't, you know, tried to. There's nobody, you know. There's nothing to do. There's no uh, scholars to go anywhere to to see how if the treatment has changed or not. But I don't know if it's going to change much, to be honest with you, the way I see it. And given that that feels like the case, and um, there's a lot of evidence to believe that is the case, tell me a little bit about what it felt like to observe, as was televised and shared in video around the world by the Israeli military, images of the university you were part of, you were building and strengthening, being detonated and raised to the ground in a video that was then 
shared widely. Uh, it's you don't know how to describe this feeling. It's it's uh, because we have so many memories in that in that building. We built every single you know piece of it. We were following up because when we started the university in 2014, it was in a small, like I say, a small campus in the northern of Gaza. At that time, we were st- we were building this main building. This is one of the biggest or the nicest building in Gaza right now. We built that building and we followed every single step of it. I mean. Uh, so it's like a, you know, it's, we have emotion, we, uh, you know, uh, relation to this place. We have uh, attachment to this place, and we would go in there every single day when we started teaching it. When we opened the building, the campus, people were coming there just taking pictures of the place. The place was very nice. I don't know if you've seen pictures of the building. It was one of the largest and nicest building in Gaza. Uh, a lot of people when they come there, they get impressed. And like I said, we have medical laboratories, we had all kind of laboratories, everything was there. I mean, everything was destroyed and gone right now. We got attached to it because we spend more time in there than probably more than we spend with our families in our houses. We were there every day from eight o'clock in the morning till five o'clock in the afternoon, every single day. That's how, you know, when you get attached to this kind of thing, it's like your house. And if you lose your house and it get destroyed, also you have a lot of memories in there. It's, you, know, you can't describe it. Uh, you know, I don't know how long it's going to take to get this back up if we ever get a chance to rebuild what, what we had in there. A lot of students are now out. A lot of our students have been killed. Their families have been killed. A lot of staff members, they have co-workers that have been killed with their family. Uh, some of them were detained by the Israelis. So it's, like I say, uh, catastrophes. And there's that you can't. You can't comprehend, you can't even keep up with the, if when you sit there alone and start thinking about it, you know, you feel frustrated, despair, I don't know how optimistic, you don't know. I said, I, I don't know what to feel, to be honest with you. Is it possible to think about the future at all? And if it is, if there is a site of hope or desire for what you hope the future could look like? What, what do you think about in those terms? I hope this uh, ordeal will end at first. This war stops the killing and the genocide and the ethnic cleansing. It stops now, right now, not tomorrow, not today, right now at this minute. I hope this will stop. And once this stops, we will start thinking about rebuilding. We, of course, we will rebuild. We're not going anywhere according, you know, that's the way I feel, the way everybody, every Palestinian feel. We want to rebuild and we want to live our life on the same place in Gaza. We are not going nowhere. And I think that the world will help us. I think God is, will help us stay in there, inshallah, God willing. We will stay there. We will go back and rebuild again. This is another, like I said, catastrophe from the Nakba, 1948, when people got kicked out of their homes. My father and my grandfather worked there. And they went through that. My uncle, he's 95 years old. He was telling us about the Nakba in 1940 when he left their houses. They were thrown out of their house and then left it. They still have keys for their house. He got killed also in the last bombing a couple of months ago. Him and his, my father and everybody was telling us about what happened in 1948. I think this history is repeating itself exactly to us. But we are not going anywhere. We will go back. Whenever we get the chance, we will go back and rebuild again and go on with our lives. Thank you so much, sir, for joining me today on Deconstructed. I wish you well. Thank you, Natasha. Thank you, everybody there. And I would love, you know, for this, you know, the world to get to everybody, every American. I know a lot of Americans don't know 
what's going on. And there, this is my granddaughter. Um, just for listeners, a beautiful little girl has popped into screen. Hello. Hello. How old is she? She's three years old. Hello. Hello. <laughs> it's lovely to meet you, and it was wonderful to talk to you, sir. Thank you so very much. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you, guys. That was Dr. Ahmed Al Husseina, the vice president of Al Isra University, a university near Gaza City that Israel first turned into a military base and later bombed and destroyed. Deconstructed is a production of The Intercept. Jose Oliveras is our lead producer. Our supervising producer is Laura Flynn. The show is mixed by William Stanton. Legal review by David Brelo and Elizabeth Sanchez. Leonardo Fireman transcribed this episode. Our theme music was composed by Bart Warshaw. Roger Hodge is The Intercept's editor-in-chief. And I'm Natasha Leonard, a columnist for The Intercept. If you'd like to support our work, go to theintercept.com slash give. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the show so you can hear it every week. And please go and leave us a rating or review. It helps people find the show. And obviously, subscribe to Intercepted as well. If you want to give us additional feedback, email us at podcasts at theintercept.com. Thanks for listening.